Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. It's no secret that online learning and remote schooling have gained significant traction over the last few years. At the outset of the pandemic, millions of students were forced to rely on virtual classes and teaching. Even as most have gone back to in-person teaching for their core education, the demand for online educational tools and programs as a supplement has continued to grow, fueling parallel growth in the burgeoning educational technology or edtech market. In this special back-to-school guest episode from the McKinsey Israel on a High Tech podcast, McKinsey consultant Peleg DiCallo speaks with senior partner Andrew Goodman and Avial Lazar, VP of Engineering of EdTech company Chegg, about the evolving EdTech market and what lessons it holds for both current and prospective entrepreneurs and investors in the space. Hope you enjoy and, of course, learn something from the conversation. Welcome to McKinsey Israel on High Tech, featuring discussions on technology, business, and management. This podcast is brought to you by McKinsey Israel Tech Hub, where we help tech companies and startups realize their full potential. Hi, everyone. I'm Peleg DeCalo, a consultant in McKinsey Israel and the host of our podcast, McKinsey Israel on High Tech. The importance of education is undeniable. Education has immense impact on society, on the next generation of scholars, leaders, and workers. In the past years, and increasingly since the pandemic became a part of our lives, more and more educational content has shifted from the physical world to the digital one. And this rise of educational technology does not show any signs of slowing down. In today's episode, we will discuss the educational technology market, how it has been affected by COVID, and conclude with some practical advice for entrepreneurs seeking to either enter this fascinating market or scale their current edtech offerings. But before doing all that, let me introduce our guests. Hello, gentlemen, Aviel, Andrew, it's great to have you on today. Andrew, you're leading McKinsey's consumer tech and media practice in Europe. And one of your areas of expertise is education and educational technology. Would you mind telling us about the educational technology market in terms of size, growth, and how do we in McKinsey segment this market? Yeah, sure. Very happy to. If you think about education and learning overall, it's about a five and a half to six trillion dollar globally. But, but the thing that's striking about education and learning is that most of that market is actually uh, government spend, a uh, kind of public spending. And so if you think about, you know, for many people, the experience of education will be going to a government funded school uh, or going to a government funded university around the world. And so if you look at that market, it is still predominantly publicly funded. And also in many areas that the, the market is still predominantly a B2B business market rather than a B2C consumer market. 
What's really interesting about education technology uh, or ed tech, as, as people refer to it, is that it's a large and rapidly growing part of the overall education market. And so depending on how you think about it and how you really count the market, it's something like $200 billion in revenue today, but growing at 15 to 20% a year. And when we at McKinsey think about education technology, we really think about it through two lenses. The first lens that we think about is typically what's the age and stage of education that's being provided that spans all the way through from the pre-K early learning education offering and companies to adult learning and workforce space. And then the second that we think about is we, we really think about almost a stack of provision of that education, starting from the things that touch the consumer or touch the learner. And so those might be offerings like some of the tutoring offerings or some of the direct provision where the learner is directly interacting with that service, all the way down the technology stack to some of the software that on a B2B basis powers schools and powers universities and powers learning providers. And so some of the big school information software providers and some of the big learning management system providers. And so, you know, we're seeing public and private valuations of education technology players in the 10 to 20x revenue range even for quite mature companies. Now it's time to introduce our second guest, Aviel Azar. Aviel, you're leading Chegg's R&D Center here in Israel. Please tell us about Chegg and where is it that you play in the market that Andrew just outlined? So I would probably say that Chegg is the largest B2C ad tech company, maybe outside of China. We mostly focus on people at the end of high school, college, and entering to the workforce. So this is the lens that I see in the day-to-day. The biggest play for us is personalization. How do you personalize education? Once there are companies overall that get to a large scale, and they now are exposed to not only a specific country, but they have more data, more users. They can offer a more personalized experience for the learners. And how do you do that in practice, Aviel? And even specifically in your R&D center in Israel? So Chegg is about a company of almost 2,000 people. And we have R&D centers around the world. And one of the R&D centers is located here in Israel, where we are a little bit more than 100 people. And the way we, we basically do it here in, in Israel is we've been part of an evolution that we're taking in the company and providing a more adapted and, as I said, personalized experience to what is the student is coming to do in our product. And we will be recommending for them what to do, what is their best next step to do in order to have the best rate of investment of their time to improve their skills and improve their knowledge and get the best results. And we, we're in practice, have developed a new kind of experience for students specifically on the mobile, because we believe, and this is another trend that we're seeing, that students want things in bite size. They want things much more flexible on the go. So you definitely need to create more flexibility and ad- adaptability to the changing lifestyle of the students. So that's some of the things that we do here in the R&D Center in Israel. Tell us a little bit about the story of Chegg Israel. How did it end up having one of its R&D centers here? Yeah, so I'll start from, from the beginning for, of Chegg. Chegg 
started from solving a specific problem for students, which was textbooks were really, really expensive in the U.S. If you had the chance to try to buy a textbook for your studies when you're, you're in college, back then was uh, above $150 for textbooks. And there was a, a great talented group of people here in Israel who offered to build the first e-reader for Chegg. So basically allowing Chegg to sell digital textbooks and building the e-reader for them. What year are we talking about? We're talking about 2011. And I personally joined half a year after the acquisition where they said, okay, we want to do more in Israel. And this is where we started to grow into doing uh, some of the mobile apps for the company. And this is where I joined the company and, you know, fast forward nine years, it's one of the uh, main R&D centers of, of Chag with around 70 developers, which has doing both the mobile apps, but also owning some of the most critical set systems of Chag. So that's a little bit of the background. I guess what happened in this period of time, Chag understood that renting textbooks was a big problem and it is still a, a, a problem. And, and, you know, we save money for students by renting them textbooks, but the bigger problem for them was they wanted to get help when they run into their assignments and they need to study for exams. So we provide basically solutions in, you know, writing support, study help, math instructions, you know, that is the bigger play that we're doing right now. And we're actually moving into basically helping you also after you study to get a job. Tang has also a service that allows you to acquiring new skills or relevant skills for that is relevant to the job market. So that is another play. And the next thing that we're helping students is managing, even we start like managing their finance. What can you tell us about the advantages and disadvantages of leading such an R&D center in our country? So I would say the advantages, and I'll be a little bit cliche maybe, is the talent pool. We are a resilient culture. So <laughs> managing through change and basically thinking creatively on problems and all our companies that has been built in Israel are from day one are built to be international or global because they're like to the global market. You can get a great talent of people who are already done it or, you know, they know how to do it and they think globally from the get go. Thank you for this overview, Aviel. Now that we have a rough understanding of the market setup and what Chegg is all about, let's talk a bit about the pandemic implications on that market. Because like any other, let's call it a remote-friendly market, the ad tech sector also achieved great growth throughout the pandemic. So it's a great question. And, and there's been a few different impacts of the pandemic that have happened so far. And, and I also think a few that are still to come. So I think the first thing the pandemic did was it really accelerated the adoption of EdTech in quite a few different ways. So in some areas, it changed consumer demand and consumer preferences. And a good example of that is in virtual schools, which Fully virtual schools have historically been a very small proportion of, of the overall market in, in most countries. But suddenly, 
they became things that had not previously been even in the consideration set of parents. Suddenly parents started to consider, you know, what would it be like to send my child to a a virtual school, you know, either during the pandemic or on a long ter- longer term basis. And so there are lots of examples of that, but that's just one where the pandemic has really changed, you know, changed consumer behavior. It also changed adoption of technology by quite a few of the large education providers. Uh, and so probably the most striking example of that is in many countries, it was impossible to deliver in-person tuition for, for large periods of 2020. And therefore, you know, in many countries, suddenly every university had to have a high quality functioning learning management system and had to have their materials made available through that learning management system. And it also changed policy in quite a few areas. And so if you look at something like online proctoring, so being able to sit exams online, a significant uptake of things like online proctoring that beforehand had just not been allowed by the policies of either institutions or or of governments suddenly became available. The second thing, which is equally, frankly, if not more important, uh, and that I think is often overlooked, is there's been really very significant learning loss during the pandemic. And that learning loss, as ever in education, hasn't been distributed equally. Uh, And so typically students from families from higher and better off socioeconomic backgrounds have typically experienced less learning loss. And those from more challenging socioeconomic backgrounds have experienced more of that learning loss. And so that's incredibly important just as we think about our societies and and how we educate children. But it's also meant that in many countries, governments have decided that they need to step in in at least some way to provide supplemental tuition for those students. And so both in the US and the UK, for example, you're seeing government funding going towards either one-on-one or small group tutoring and tuition, which is not something that's that's really been done on quite as widespread a basis. And so you're starting to see companies either scale or develop around addressing some of that learning loss that's happened during the pandemic. And then the third thing that's happened is obviously in, in many countries, people during the pandemic lost their jobs or in countries that had employment support or furlough programs ended up on those programs. And that really, I think for many people, both provided a stimulus, but also, you know, in some cases provided the time to think about what their reskilling might look like. And so you've seen real uptake, some of the kind of skilling offerings that Abiel was talking about in terms of being able to kind of build your skill set either within your existing industry or to acquire a whole new set of a whole new set of skills. Thank you for providing us with this macro overview, Andrew. Now, let's go to a bit more of the micro implications and let's use Che Gaviel as a case study. How did the pandemic affect Che's trajectory? So I, I think it will really resonate well with what Andrew just articulated. Basically, we've seen students lose the services that they were getting from the campus for their universities, like they went back home and the universities didn't have the right resources or the right methods to provide the same services to them. Students basically needed to figure out the assignment and no longer they had the study hours from the campus or, or the, or even their study group to figure out things. So they started to Google and then they got into Jack's world. So let's switch gears and talk about the future. So let's start with you, Andrew. A lot of our work in McKinsey is helping our clients to better prepare for the future. 
tell us a little bit about how we do that in EdTech. So we broadly serve three types of clients in the education work. The first is we help quite a few of the largest education providers, but also the largest education companies in the world, significantly improve their performance. That's everything from how do you significantly increase the cadence and speed of your product development cycle so you can get products out to market very rapidly? That can be how can you be most cost efficient in the delivery of your provision or in the acquisition of your students and your and your customers so that you can reinvest in, in quality and so that you can reinvest in, reinvest in provision. The second is we do quite a bit of work with what I would think of as fast-growing, earlier-stage education and, and education technology businesses. And for those businesses, the questions are typically around growth. How can we grow as quickly as possible? And it's really you know, one striking truth about the education market, particularly out of, outside of China, is that there's you know, now a relatively large number of education players that have a market capitalization of more than a billion dollars. But very few education companies still that have revenues of more than a billion dollars. And then the last category is actually companies that are not education and learning companies at all. So I lead our consumer media and consumer technology practice in Europe. And I would say of clients in the kind of telecom and media and technology space more broadly, probably the, the sector we get asked the most about growing into an adjacency in is education and learning. And so quite a bit of the work that we do is for companies that are not education and learning companies, but are trying to figure out how do you grow in education and learning and what does a compelling offer look like given their distinct strengths. You mentioned one growth lever, which is internationalization, which is expansion. And Aviel, what kind of work is being done in CHEG on that aspect? Yeah, I think we're experiencing a more like a globalization. So Basically, if I, even a company in Israel, right, that wants to help education in Brazil or something like that, it, it is something that is much more possible and is much like penetrating those markets is easier, especially with the help of a maybe bigger companies or maybe bigger platform of, of ad tech education, maybe like Chegg and, and other like Coursera or something like that. When we think about pockets of growth or even growth levers, I would really like to get your perspective on what are the new solutions that we see the most. From my perspective, from the lens of the B2C, I would say, from the student perspective, what I'm most excited about to see the, the growth coming is this hybrid learning experience, meaning you don't have to be in class to study. It's much more flexible. And what we need is to reinvent the classroom. The same way that we're seeing now some other companies trying to reinvent the workplace with augmented reality and other stuff. It's for me is like kind of, okay, the universities have to understand that having an in-person experience in class is no longer the only way to teach and to learn new skills and get knowledge. So for me, like a five into 10 years kind of horizon, it's a complete new classroom experience, as I said, on maybe on the go, flexible, bite-sized, personalized. Andrew, what are the solutions that we can expect to see? So I, I really like Aviel's framing of the, the situation. And I think there is a debate within the educational learning community as to what do the next 20 years look like. And there are definitely some people who are at the 
you know, what I would think of as kind of techno-optimist end of that spectrum that basically argue that really we're at an inflection point that can, you know, blow up the conventional provision of education. You know, education will look totally different in 20 years. It will not be led by the same types of institutions that we have today, you know, it will be fully personalized. And there's probably another end of the spectrum, which is for structural and societal reasons, the core of education provision in 20 years' time, you know, will not look that dissimilar to today. You know, we will still have schools, we will still have universities, but the impact of technology will be to change each layer of that provision in a few different ways. And I think the first of those is just really ubiquitous access to really high quality content. You know, I think we all probably remember, you know, our own educational experience and thinking, you know, there was some content that we got taught that was both amazing in its quality, but also amazing in its pedagogy and, and teaching. And that's really stuck with us. But we probably also remember some content that wasn't as good, that wasn't as, as high quality. And, and the pedagogy may also not have been as, as high quality. And I think one really powerful impact that technology is having is really making that very high quality content and very high quality delivery ubiquitous in its access. I think the second thing that's really going to change is access and the range of different ways of accessing and modalities and timings of accessing learning. We have universities, but I think people will not just access, you know, post-secondary, post-K-12 learning through universities, you know, but also through a range of the kind of, you know, former kind of MOOC providers through their employers, you know, in a variety of different ways, be that from, you know, fully bite-sized in the way that Aviel was talking about through to much more modular, through to kind of full provision. One of my favorite examples is, you know, it's a very niche example, but I think it shows you what you can do, is Leith's, which is a cookery school in the UK. Now, obviously, if you were a cookery school in the UK during COVID, it was a particularly uh, challenging time, right? You know, it's an in-person activity. Uh, you're typically in small groups in very close proximity with other people. You know, you're preparing food. And, and Leith's was able to really effectively transition to a digital and very emergent offering with great asynchronous content that was kind of recorded by really high quality teachers, but also to make the assessment and the video assessment uh, kind of much more totally online, totally digital, uh, and much more interactive. And so I think, you know, you're, you're going to see in my mind, the structures of education will persist, but the content will become dramatically better. Ben Evans, one of the I think one of the most interesting kind of technology analysts out there you know, always says that at the time that you had 3G and, and mobile smartphones, it wasn't clear what the killer app for 3G and mobile smartphones was because it was just hard to envisage it at the time. And I think different contexts, but I think the same to some degree will be true of education technology. It's easy to understand what the impact on traditional systems will be. I think it's harder when content is modular, liquid, distributed to understand what some of the killer applications beyond the next 10 to 20 years are going to are going to look like. Andrew, let's talk about the entrepreneurs, the ones that are seeking growth and are coming to McKinsey for our teams to assist them with thinking and identifying those pockets of growth that we talked about. Focusing on the innovation side of things, what do you see from your wide perspective that is missing in this market? I think the main answer is probably scale. That sounds like a little bit of a trite answer, but I think education and education technology is still a astonishingly fragmented industry if you compare it to any other technology-enabled industry. You know, 
there's no Facebook or Amazon or Google of, of education and learning. Although, by the way, all of those players, and particularly Google, do have significant presences. But the problems that education technology entrepreneurs are trying to solve have lots of parallels in the problems that other entrepreneurs have, have tried to solve over the last decade. Aviel, do you have any advice to maybe young entrepreneurs and maybe you identify some shortages, something that is missing, a specific thing that is untapped or even more on the macro level? In the past, ad tech companies and especially around B2C were more around the do good kind of companies. And now we, we are seeing ad tech companies going to the high growth kind of, and, 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 you know, there's more money in the market, more money, like in, for, you know, investors are much more interested in ethic than, than ever before. So for entrepreneurs that are thinking whether to start an ad tech company, that's like, hell yes, it's that time. And this is to, to the entrepreneurs which the, the field that I'm most excited about is, as I said, personally is, is reinventing the classroom. This is definitely, you know, having everyone being able to access a great, great quality content. That's, you know, in the end for all of us in the ad tech industry, we, we want to do good. So I believe when you do, when you do good, you bring value to the world. And in the end, it, it translates in the right kind of setup to hyper growth. So that is kind of my advice. Like it, it is the time to open an ethic company. Andrew and Aviel, it was a true pleasure having you on today. We heard a lot of insight from you. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for listening to McKinsey Israel on high tech. Subscribe to our podcast and feel free to contact us at israelpodcast at mckinsey.com to share your thoughts, comments, and suggestions. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.